Uh, you can open your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. We've been off of Mark for, oh, I think it's been maybe seven or eight weeks or so. So I've been in Nepal and um, come back and then we just had some various things. We get back in here and I, I look forward weeks to come to just march through our this wonderful gospel here in, in Mark chapter 7. You know, every religion in the world is an attempt in, in some way to get right with God. Um, or you might say, in the case of some world religions, what must I do to get right with the gods? Or with the spirits? Or with the spiritual realm? It matters not whether we speak of Hinduism or Buddhism or animism or Wiccan or Islam or Judaism or Christianity. They're all seeking peace somehow with the spiritual world. Now, they almost all of them answer with some sort of ritual you must do. You must offer some incense to God, or you must eat the right food, or you must say the right prayers, or you must behave in a certain way, or attend the specific religious gatherings, or go to a certain place, or be anointed by the priest, or or whatever you can, so as to get to God. Hindus and Buddhists place food before their altars. Animists pray to their ancestors. Wiccan seeks to commune with the evil spirits. The Muslims pray to Mecca every day. The Jews of Jesus' day followed traditions. Christianity, in some measure, is unique. It's really the heart of Judaism. The Pharisees missed it in many ways. But Christianity is, rather than seeking outward conformity to some religious activity, rather... Christians seek inward transformation which then flows out in a right life. Flows out in faith and love. Rather than focusing on the actions of activities of what one does, our focus is on faith of Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection which imputes righteousness to us. And then from that, just flows everything that we do. Another parallel question is rather than what, rather than being what makes me right with God, what is it that defiles me? What is it that keeps me from God? And again, most world religions answer the question by neglect of these rituals, by not offering the incense, or not eating the right food, or not saying the right prayers, or not fasting at the right time, or sinning in some way, or, or missing the religious gatherings, not making your journey to Mecca. And Christianity, again, is somewhat unique because for believers in Jesus Christ, the uh, the, the distance between us and God isn't so much a day-to-day status as it is a once-for-all transaction that takes place when we believe in Jesus. God imputes righteousness to us because as that song we sang, we sang, He became sin who knew no sin that we might become His righteousness. God, by His grace, transforms our heart, gives us a soft heart towards Him where once we were unclean, now we are clean in the blood of Jesus and then everything flows from that. Now, these are the sorts of questions that we're going to get at in our, our text today. What Questions of being made right with God and questions of being defiled. Our text is Mark 7, 1-23. through 23. I want to begin by reading the first 13 verses. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around Him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of His disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of pots and cups and pitchers and copper pots. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked Him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with impure hands? And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. And he was also saying to them, You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or to his mother, whatever I have would help you is Corban, that is to say, given to God. You no longer permit him to do anything for his father or for his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. 
Once again in our text, we see Jesus in conflict with the Pharisees. Nothing new. The life of Jesus, you can just even turn back to Mark chapter 2 and you see the, the oppositions mounting when the paralytic was let through the roof and Jesus said, my son, your sins are forgiven. And, and they accused Jesus of blasphemy. He said, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise up and walk? And of course, he did the harder to prove the easier in some regard. And then in chapter 2, the conflict continues when Jesus would call despicable people like Matthew, the tax collector. Why would you do that? And then he eats with sinners. Oh, we wouldn't eat with those people. And there's a conflict that's arising. And Jesus said it's not the, the healthy you need a physician, but it's the, the sick. And then there's questions about the Sabbath. There's questions about the withered man with the withered hand. Are you going to heal him on the Sabbath or not? And these, these things just continue to rise so much so that when the opposition came, they said, we're going to destroy this man, said the Pharisees in chapter 3, verse 6. And, and here in chapter 7, the Pharisees are coming against Jesus and, and you can even see the effort that they made to come. It says in verse 1, the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around Him when they had come from Jerusalem. Remember, Jesus was ministering in Judea at the time, which is up north, the Sea of Galilee area. Jerusalem is down south, several days' walk. They're coming up here, I don't think with good intent, they're coming up here to attack Jesus and find something wrong with Him. They didn't just stumble upon His teaching. I think they came to take Jesus down. As chapter 3, verse 6 said, they went out and began conspiring as to how they might destroy Him. If you think though about the context here, it is is really quite amazing to see that Jesus was healing many... um, he was teaching them in chapter 4. Uh, in chapter 5, he, he came along, healed the Gerasene demoniac, just doing much good, healing um, Jairus' daughter and the woman with the issue of the blood, raising from the dead even. Um, and and then, then even going out, continuing to do that. We're, we're coming right off the section where Jesus is showing His compassion by feeding 5,000 people and by walking on water and by healing. It's, it's like Jesus is coming with good and they're coming with ill. And... Really, because of their traditionists, we'll see. I'm reminded of an encounter that I had with a, a, with a pastor who's a godly man. He's a righteous man, but I knew that he was in some difficulties in ministry. And so I, my aim in meeting with this guy was totally to encourage him. That's all I wanted to do. I just said, you know what, God? Let me, I know we disagree on some things, but just let me be an encouragement to this man. He, he labored hard, had some difficulties, and things were difficult for him. And I just said, I just want to encourage him. And so, in the midst of it, so I bought him lunch. We're sitting there talking to him. I'm trying to encourage him. And um, so I just some, quoted some Bible verses to him, just trying to encourage him. And instantly he said, what, what version of the Bible is that? And um, because it wasn't from the King James Version, I wasn't, uh, then the discussion went off to the King James Version and all this stuff. And, and, and every time I tried to encourage him with a word, what version is that from? And it just went to the King James Version. It just kind of like, he had, this, he had this thing, it had to be from that version. If I had that version memorized, I knew that, I'd be quoting from that so as to bend, so as to help him. But it really struck me how Jesus here is just trying to help and trying to heal and trying to, and they're coming and they're just attacking him because of their tradition of, as my case, holding to a translation of the Bible so clouds the mind they can't receive the encouragement. And here in this case, the context is that they're so clouded with this idea they're going to attack Jesus that they miss all the good that He's doing. And so they come and attack Him because of their tradition, as we'll see, over the issue of defiled hands. Here's my first point this morning. Dirty hands? Is that what defiles us? My sermon is entitled, What Defiles Us? Is it dirty hands? That's what the Pharisees thought. Verse 2, they had seen that some of His disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, and that is unwashed. Now, in our day and age, we understand the value of washing hands. Uh, In fact, 80% of infectious diseases are carried by our hands as we touch something infected and then we rub our eye or we touch our mouth. We just get the diseases into us and then we shake hands with somebody else and and we're wonderful at sharing those sorts of things. Um, We get that abroad. And according to the CDC, keeping hands clean through improved hand hygiene is one of the most important steps we can to avoid getting sick and spreading the germs to others. Uh, I remember working at Kishwaukee Hospital um, a few years back. I, I quit my job about 10 years ago to come work up here. I worked in the computer department. 
And uh, yet still, we in our orientation were instructed how to wash our hands. Now, Brian, you probably know all about this, but we were instructed when we go in, we turn on the faucet. Okay, kids, take note of this, okay? You turn on the faucet. You guys ever wash your hands? <laughs> no, probably not. I know, just an aside, my, my son likes to play my iPod Touch. And whenever we get back, it's all like gunked up and stuff on the screen. You guys ever experienced that? <laughs> like... I remember one time he uh, had something on his fingers, like some food or some chocolate or something, so I went like this and, and licked him off and went, oh, because I think I just took a whole mouthful of dirt in there anyway, so he's, he's not learned yet. But anyway, kids, take note of this. I was taught at a hospital. I mean, here I am, 30 years old, 25 years old, whatever, working in the computer department. They said, okay, turn on the faucet, wet your hands, and they're telling me this, wet your hands, take some soap out of the, the dispenser, and then rub your hands for 20 seconds. Okay, 20 seconds. And um, they said, well, in order to do that, maybe you can sing, Yankee Doodle came to town, a walk riding on a pony, stuck a feather in his hat and called it macaroni. Yankee Doodle, keep it up. Yankee Doodle, dandy, pa-da-da-da. I don't know the words. Ta-da, how a handy. And uh, then, then you're done. So 20 seconds is what, what they say. Um, and then rinse it off. And then, don't turn the water off. Don't turn the water off because your hands are clean now. Are you okay? I know, I know. Don't wipe your nose. Don't wipe your nose. That's really bad. i got to do it again. i got to start over take some more soap. <laughs> Yankee Doodle went to town. Okay, so that's really bad. So don't wipe your nose like I did. That's, but, but don't turn off the faucet, I was taught. Because that's defiled and I'm going to... I'm going to defile my hands again. And so I need to go and, and pull out some paper towels and then wipe, dry my hands and then take the paper towel and shut the, the faucet off. And then as I'm leaving, don't open the door with my hands because the door, everyone's been talking to the door handle. So I take my paper towel and I open the door and I put my foot here and then I take my paper towel and if, if it's a long ways away, I'm playing basketball or if it's just right here, I'm just putting it in and then I'm leaving, all right? Ryan, is that right? I don't know. Yeah, all you in nursing professions and hospitals, that, that's what you are taught to do. Well, of course, that's not what the Pharisees are concerned about when they're concerned about dirty hands. But I thought it was a good illustration that you will all remember. But here's just dirty hands. They were concerned about, about uh, purity. They were concerned about ritual cleansings. Because it says here, he explains in verse 3, the Pharisees and the Jews do not eat unless they carefully washed their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. There are many other things that they have received to observe. It's the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. Now the key word here is found in verse 3, impure hands. The Pharisees do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands. And it's verse 2, right? The impure hands, that is unwashed. Your translation may say, unclean hands, quote-unquote, right? In a ceremonially defiled way. I think the ESV, I like that the best. It says, you're defiled hands. That's the idea. You're eating with defiled hands is what they, they thought. Now, they were defiled not because the disciples were particularly sinful, but it's because they didn't wash in this particular way of the elders. The Pharisees paid close attention to the ritual purity, and they didn't eat unless they'd been ritually purified. They didn't eat unless they'd ritually cleansed themselves from the defilement of the marketplace. If they went out in the marketplace and interacted with Gentile people, they went back and washed themselves to make sure they didn't get defilement from them. They wanted to make sure the cups and pitchers and pots were all ritually clean. And, and here's how, how they washed. First of all, they had to have their, sand, their hands clean from all, from all like gravel and dirt and things like that. And then they took some water from a big basin which is set, set apart, sanctified, cleansed, pure water... And then they take something, I don't think it looked as fancy as this, but um, actually this was a gift from some Nepali pastors a few years back, so I'm thankful for this. But they'd put some water in there, and then they'd put their fingertips in the air, and then they'd pour their water on it so it'd come down even to their wrist. And maybe this kind of defiles, but they, they go like this and, and pour the water down on their wrist, a little bit like a surgeon who might, might wash hands like this. And then when it got down past their wrist, then they would rub to cleanse the fist of one and the palm of the other and the fist of one and the other. And then they would put their hands down like this so as to get all that water off and so as to be ritually cleansed. And so they eat. And that was their tradition. Once they did that, they were ceremonially clean and they were ready 
to eat. A little bit like our tradition in the Christian circles, if you're, you know what I mean, you sit down before something and everyone else has already eaten. In our Christian circles, what do we do? What's our tradition? And then you eat. Okay? It's a good practice. There's nothing wrong with that practice to wash their hands. Okay? But when it gets elevated to the importance of what it is, that's when it gets into trouble. It's a good practice to pray before you eat. But if it ever gets to the point where you see someone who eats without praying and you start jumping on them, <laughs> you're, you're off balance. All right? But here's how important it was to them. Barclay said this in his commentary. The man who ate with unclean hands was subject to the attacks of a demon called Shibta. To omit so to wash their hands was to become liable to poverty and destruction. Bread eaten with unclean hands was not better than excrement. A rabbi once commented, once omitted, the ceremony was buried in excommunication. And another rabbi, catch this, was imprisoned by the Romans. He used the water given to him for hand washing rather than for drinking. And in the end, nearly perished of thirst because he determined to observe the rules of cleanliness rather than satisfy his thirst. So he was given just a little allotment of water. But, but that was seen as such a good thing because here was this rabbi keeping clean even in prison. So high did they keep their, their ritual. And why? Here's the fundamental Because they believed that that was their approach to God. The way that they washed their hands. They thought that, that being righteous and being separated from sinners and having clean hands, that was what's going to get them to God. And this washing here is just one a whole line of things that Pharisees kept. They had meticulous rules to keep themselves pure. They, meticulous rules regarding the tithe that they gave to the temple or careful to describe what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath day and how exactly to offer the sacrifices. And see, if you notice here, I mean, to us, right, tradition is in some regard nothing to us. There are traditions which are certainly good and helpful, and we have a slew of them here at Rock Valley Bible Church. But traditions to us are not authoritative. They're not binding. What is binding is what God has said in His Word. And so we look to the Bible. But them, they look at their traditions, and they kept to their traditions, and they were proud of it. It was standard operating procedure. They had God's Word, and they had tradition. And they both were equally binding and they weren't ashamed about this at all. They placed great value on their tradition. That's why they asked him in verse 5, the Pharisees and the scribes asked, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? Now, it's, it's interesting. It, it is right that they had to appeal to the tradition because nothing in the law describes washing of hands in order to eat. The law many has many instructions about washing clothes or has many instructions about washing the leprous portion of skin if being checked out by a priest to see what it looks like in a week. Uh, elders are supposed to wash their hands uh, in, in the midst of offering a sacrifice for an unsolved murder. But other than that, there's nothing in the law about, about um, washing of hands. And therefore, it is right that they had to appeal to their tradition rather than to the Word of God. And by the way, just so you know, their tradition then skewed them from the Word of God. And so it's, it's always the case, whenever a religion has the Bible in some other book, that other book or that other tradition will always trump what the Bible says. It doesn't matter what the Bible says. It's the tradition. It's the interpretation upon that. And that's where traditions can go astray. But it was a transgression against the tradition. And a transgression against a tradition is worse than, in many ways, a transgression against the law. And here's the transgression. Your disciples have dirty hands. So Jesus cuts to the chase here in verses 6 through 8. He said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy to you. Pulls back from Isaiah 29 and describes their fundamental problem. They said the right things. They honored God with their lips. But that's all it was. It was just heart service. Verse 6, he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold fast to the tradition of men. And you see, the problem here was that they so focused on the externals, they so focused upon what it was on the outside that they missed the inside. In other words... And the result of this is that they missed the heart. 
Their hands were clean for sure, but they missed the heart of everything. And the result was their efforts came short. In vain, verse 7 says, do they worship me? In other words, they failed in their worship. Oh, they gave their money. Oh, they sang their songs. Oh, they brought their sacrifices. But in the end, you know what it got them? Nothing. That's what this word vain means. Empty do they worship me. It's as if they didn't even do it at all. It's like they, they went to class, but didn't listen to what the teacher said, didn't take the test very well, and got an F. Not because they didn't do everything right. They did everything right, but they missed the heart of everything. And do you realize that you can come to church dressed in your Sunday's best, singing all the songs with all the volume, being into it emotionally, listen to every word that's spoken, every word that's prayed, saying amen to it all, and have God look down upon your heart and your life with a frown rather than a smile. If you miss the heart of worship. And the heart of worship, of course, is loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? Not seeking to put on a religious display, but, but loving Him and trusting in Jesus with our whole heart. God said this to Israel, Amos chapter 5, 21 through 24, I hate, no, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Here's God. He commanded the festivals. He commanded the assemblies. And then He says He hates them. Why? He says, even though you offer up burnt offerings and your grain offerings, which, by the way, are according to the law, He says, I will not accept them. I will not even look at the peace offering of your fatlings. God says, take away from Me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sounds of your harps. And why is that? But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. It's not like they abandoned their worship. It's not like they abandoned the festivals or the sacrifice. Everything that God commanded, they did. But they were missing justice. They're, they're missing the fruit of a heart that loves God. He says, therefore, I'm going to reject you. They honored the Lord with their lips, but their heart far from was far from God. And God says, in vain do you worship In our text, Jesus really addressing the fundamental problem with the Pharisees, why it got to this point is because they held to the tradition and neglected the commandment. That's what verse 8 says. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. And if you want to choose the commandment of God or the tradition of men, many people choose the tradition and God does not look, up, look nicely upon that. It's the commandment of God. Just God's Word is what He wants. And then He just demonstrates. Here's one instance where this is the case. He says, he was saying to them, you, verse 9, are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father and mother is be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or to his mother, whatever I have that would help you as Corbin, that is to say, given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or for his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many such things as that. Jesus here begins with two commandments. One's from the, the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother. And the second comes just right after that, Exodus 21, verse 17. He who speaks evil of father and mother shall be put to death. And then Jesus puts the commandment of God versus this tradition called Corbin. Here's the way it works. Is, uh, your parents are getting older, as mine are, coming up on hard times, health difficulties, they develop some needs. You, you've got some animals on your farm and they've had to sell their animals to someone else in order to live. But you like your animals and you don't want to give them away. So what you say is you say these animals are given to the Lord. These are the Lord's animals. You get to use them. You get to have them. You get to possess them. When they die, you probably get to eat them. Maybe give a little bit to the priest. Who knows? But, but you've got your animals and they are given to the Lord. And so you say, oh, mom and dad, how I wish I could give you my water buffalo to help you. But I can't because it is given to God. You can't have it. And, and, and there you see where the tradition, the practice of Corbin then trumps um, the commandment of God. It sounds spiritual, but actually in a way it's a, a way to by me, by greed, to protect my assets found upon my greed. And Jesus then points out this hypocrisy. You invalidate the Word of God by your tradition. 
And then Jesus adds at the end of verse 13, um, and you do many things such as that. So in other words, Jesus could have said, okay, here's one instance. And here's another instance. And here's another instance. And here's another instance. And here's... An, he could have piled them deep and high. And maybe he did at some time. So I'm trying to think, what do we know anything about other instances of this? <clears throat> I went to the commentary. The commentaries are pretty quiet at this point. Uh, most of them just kind of passed over this. But I'm thinking, what, what did they do? What, what were some of these many things? And then I thought, you know, back in chapter 2, the disciples were eating a little bit of grain on the Sabbath. They were hungry. Um, they were out doing ministry. They were helping to others. And they were taking the grain and eating it just for a little sustenance on the way. And the Pharisees were all up in arms and attacked them for saying, you're breaking the Sabbath. And yet the Pharisees right, didn't, didn't even take into account that they were doing good, but just came the letter of the law, smash and bang down on them. And then Jesus replied, the quote from Hosea 6.6, 6, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. In other words, Pharisees, you're so concerned about keeping to all your customs that, that you've neglected the heart of the commandments with just compassion and love for others. There was an instance. Oh. Or, or maybe even in chapter 3 when the man with the withered hand came. Because they, they brought this man. It was the Pharisees' agenda to bring this man with a withered hand and say, okay, are you going to heal him or not? And they knew it was Saturday. It was the Sabbath. Are they going to heal him or not? And, and Jesus then asked that question, right? Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good? To save a life or to kill? And she looked around there quiet. They didn't say anything. Because of course the answer is, the Sabbath is all about, about, about good, about being a day of joy and a day of help. In fact, Isaiah 58 verse 13 the Lord called the Sabbath day a delight. It should be a, a, a day of help. It should be a, a day of joy. But they were holding the Sabbath keeping rather than the spirit of the Sabbath, which is a day of rest and enjoyment and pleasure in God. They made the day more about regulations than about joy and delight. and therefore missed Or what about fasting? Jesus said when they fasted, they put on a gloomy face and neglected their appearance so that they could say, Oh... Pastor Steve, are you okay? And I say, oh, yes, I'm just fasting for the Lord. I'm just fasting. I'm really hungry. But I can't eat today because I'm fasting. Or, oh, I'd like to eat. Oh, but I can't because I'm, I'm fasting for the Lord today. And all these, you know, just drawing attention to themselves where instead, God said in Isaiah 58, here's the real fast that delights the Lord. Dividing your bread with the hungry and bringing the homeless poor into your house. That's what the real fasting is about. So it says, I'm not going to eat because I'm going to share with you. And you don't have a place to stay, so you're going to stay with me. That's what true fasting is about. Or how about the whole practice of giving? They gave all right. They gave, made sure they get their tithe in there and they gave their tithe, even so much so that when they brought in their spices, right? And just the spicing, you have a big thing of spices here and it weighs, you know, all of a pound. And they start splitting it up. Okay, here's the tithe and here's what I get. So everything they get, it was just, just meticulous in terms of giving the tithe. And Jesus said in Matthew 23, 23, yet you give the tithe right down to the ounce, but you've neglected the weightier provisions of the law like justice and mercy and faithfulness. I mean, he affirmed the giving of the tithe, but, but then he said, you neglect the bigger things, the more important things. And Jesus likened them to the one who would strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Little bug! Oh, let's get that little bug out of there! Right? But then totally missed the camel. It's like the elephant in the room. So meticulous they were to give the tithe, they missed the importance of the things in the law. And, and those are some of the ways the Pharisees held to their tradition and neglected the commandment of God. And, and I'm sure that if we could be able to live amongst them, we could probably say even with Jesus and many such things you do such as that. Alright, now before we get too smug, realize that this that invaded Pharisees invades Christianity as well. Uh, there are lots of things. There are lots of branches of Christianity that are known for piling rules upon rules upon rules upon rules to people, for people to follow. It's because fundamentally, right, 
People are concerned externally rather than internally. They want to make a good show at church rather than really let, know, let people know what's happening in, in their hearts and in their lives. Um, and churches like that tend to be just show up on Sunday morning and leave kind of churches. But churches that know that they're inside out, it's a matter of, hey, I just want to share my life with you. And it's not all pretty. I want to share my life with you. Churches come up with rules regarding what you can and can't do. And I just hear a couple of them. big one is alcohol. Nowhere in the Bible says that you should abstain from alcohol. Now, drunkenness is certainly wrong. But abstinence isn't a biblical command. And it might be a wise thing to do. It might be a good thing for you. But it's not commanded in the Bible. But churches even have in their church covenant. We're going to not drink alcohol. It's like going too far. And it becomes then a standard. And then what happens then when you're in the company of someone who's drinking alcohol? How does that happen? How does that work? Not very good. Because you become judgmental. Or smoking. The Bible doesn't say anything about smoking. Pipes or cigarettes or cigars. Now, the reason is not to smoke. It's not healthy. It makes you smell bad. But the Bible is silent regarding smoking. Illegalism. There's lots of other things. And I, I, I won't elaborate, but, but where you can go. Or what you can do. Oh, if you're a Christian, you can't do that. Now, there, certainly there are some things you, you can't do, but... You, you can do a lot of things with the right heart that a lot of people will condemn you for because they're more interested in keeping their, their traditions rather than the commands of God. There's sorts of movies you can watch, where you can watch them, the sorts of television shows you can watch, music styles you can listen to, whether or not instruments are allowed in church or not, sort of clothes you can wear, how to school your children, how your children should find their marriage pa- partner, how you can do church on Sunday, what sort of music is permissible in church? What sort of programs are permissible in church? Can you have a youth group? Can you have a nursery? Can you have a children's church? What Bible translation should you read? Body piercings, hair length, debt, diet? Now, there are many who have just piled rules upon rules and they come up with this Christian subculture that is far above and beyond what the Bible speaks about. And here's... Um, Here's the danger to that, is it makes people think they're righteous. That's the fun. Because we can keep external rules like that. In fact, the rules are made so we can keep them. But the heart of the Bible shows some rules that we can't meet. Like Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Which of you have kept that one? I haven't. It says love God always, all the time. That's what the Bible says. You can't keep that. That'd be a terrible tradition to keep. We want traditions that are easy, right? Like a dress code on Sunday morning. We can easily keep that. Right? Or like attendance someplace. We can just we can neglect some other things to be in attendance there. Or like a standard of reading. Well, we can do that. But once you start seeing what the Bible says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, love your neighbors yourself, that one's pretty hard too. In fact, Jesus, when he was asked about loving your neighbors yourself, someone said, Oh, and who's my neighbor? And you remember the story he told? The Good Samaritan. The guy who walked down the road and was, was uh, beaten by robbers and then the priests and the holy men passed by, but the scum Samaritan went by and helped the man and brought him into the, uh, the hotel and then paid for the, all of his care to get him going. And he's just like a stranger on the street and says, that's what it means to love your neighbor. And I do believe that Jesus intentionally, hyperbole showed just that's what you need to do to everybody. And so if you don't do that to somebody, then you haven't loved your neighbor as yourself. How many of you loved your neighbor as yourself? The idea of that is to pierce our hearts and to say, God, we are, we are sinful. We, we need your help in order to... In fact, there's no way I can do everything that you've called us to do. And you're like, that's the point. That's what Jesus did on your behalf. Which we'll celebrate this morning at the end of our service in the Lord's Supper is to celebrate this fact that we, we don't have to do all these things to be right with God, but, but as God, the traditions look on the external, but God pierces, looks deep into our hearts to see where our hearts are, and then we are to end up in futility. We say, Jesus, I need your blood, I need your righteousness. And so we rejoice in that. Now, I think there is a clear reason why churches get to the spot is because our nature is rules and regulations and ways that we please God. That's just, this is what we want to know. I can't tell you how many times I've heard this. Preacher, just tell me what to do. 
But you know what? Just that again, that's just saying, give me the traditions, give me the rules you're going to keep. Like, no, I'd rather say, just love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then you figure it out what you're supposed to do. It's much better that way. But, but we like, it's in our nature to have all these, these rules. That's why the world religions have all these things for you to do. Because and, and, we want the specific guidance. We want this man-made religion. We want the traditions. I was really struck when we were in Nepal. And we saw, we went into several Buddhist temples. And when we went there, um, it's amazing we saw big statue in the front of the Buddhist temple. And um, pillows in front of the statue where, where devout Buddhists could kneel and pray to the statue. Candles burning along the side. Other statues all the way around. Incense burning. People often walking into the temple and, and bowing in, uh, in humble submission. Prayers repeated over and over and over again. Religious trinkets able to be purchased, to be able to put in your home or, or in your taxi cab, right? Um, like like this, this, uh, this statue that's going to protect you, the statue of travel, right? Or the, the statue of this, or something that, that you can hang from your, uh, from your rearview mirror. Does that sound like anything? You ever, you ever seen or experienced anything like that? What does it sound like? Does it sound like a Catholic church? And here's, here's what I struck. I'm, I'm thinking, you know what? Buddhism and Catholicism are like night and day. I mean, Catholicism flows from the Scriptures in many ways, and there's, there's tradition there, and there's priests, but it's all this other stuff on tradition. But, but what trajectory has Catholicism taken? It's taken right to the same end that Buddhism, which believes that everything is spirit and, and reincarnation, how, that goes to the same end. Why? I think there's something in us that, that loves incense, that loves ritual, that loves the extra, loves the things I can do in order to make myself right with God. We want something that can we feel and touch and do and see. But I say the religion of the Bible isn't something you can see and touch and feel and see. Rather, it's something that you believe and trust and hear. It's the Christianity of the Bible. And the danger in legalism is that these things make you feel righteous, right? I've got all the Sunday school pins. I've been there. I'm okay. But we're not okay. We are all, are all of us undone. I mean, Isaiah 6, the right, most righteous guy in the land, when he saw God, he said he was undone. And us, when we see our sin, when God in His Word pierces us deep in the heart, we will see we're undone. We need a Savior. That's why Jesus came. But when you become more interested in religious things than you are in God and His work in you, it's where you're in trouble. And you've missed the Gospel. And you've missed the hope. The hope is never that we'll be able to do enough. I mean, if you're into putting your incense or or buying your candles or or getting your um, prayer said for you or in Hinduism, right, to get your tikka or to to do your seance or to do this, all you got to do is ask someone, are you sure you've done enough? Are you sure you've done enough? And, and come, oh, I'm not sure. I need to do something else. And then once you do that, are you sure you've done enough? You'll, you'll never get there. But it's when it's in your heart and you say, I know I've not done enough. I know I'm never going to be able to do enough. God, my only hope is in you. It's then that you can have assurance. And then you can have a joy that says, I'm justified before His sight. What an amazing good news that is. And, and I love because He first loved me. I was really struck, Ryan, when you sang our song today, Oh, the Deep, Deep Love of Jesus. Um, sometimes in church, churches are accused of singing love songs to Jesus. Um, and Ryan and I have talked about that just in terms of, we, we don't want to be a song. It just sings love songs. Oh, Jesus, I love you. And, and there's a point for that because we do love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We want to. We, we, we long for that. There is a, a sense in which we love God because of what He's done for us. But really struck me in that song, that's a... A love song about how God has loved us. I, you hear a lot of, I, I, don't, I don't listen to that a lot, but country songs about how someone loved one another, how my love to someone. But I'm not sure there are many songs about their love to me. Maybe there are. Carl, you can kind of scoop that around. I don't know. You can probably think some. I, I don't know. Garth, maybe you got some in the back of your mind. I don't know. But 
But here it is, that God has loved us, Christ has loved us. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, so vast and measurable. That is what has come upon us, and, and that's what makes us righteous before Him. Not all the things that we're doing. And yet the Pharisees thought that their problem before God was that they had dirty hands. And so they tried incessantly to clean up your hands, but when you clean up your hands, they're going to get dirty again. But Jesus then turns it to say, here's the key problem. Your key problem isn't your dirty hands. What defiles us before God? Dirty hearts. Second point, dirty hearts. And that's what we see here in verse 14. And after he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things that proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. These words, Jesus tries to say, guys, it's not about the externals. Pharisees, you put so much attention upon the externals, it's not about that. Rather, it's what's going on in your heart. That's the big thing. And they missed it. On one occasion, Jesus said to the Pharisees, He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside may become clean also. And Jesus is saying there is that you look good on the outside. You look like this pristine mug. But on the inside, actually, you got dirt and muck in there. So, so don't come to church. Don't present yourself to God clean on the outside. I mean, I know when I'm washing the dishes, I take the... I take the um, the brush or the washcloth, and I'm, I'm in that thing, right? I, I know you guys who wash the dishes. Men, you should be washing dishes for your wife. She's cooking the meal. You wash the dishes, serve her that way. But you can wash, you can wash in there, and you're getting inside, right, to get that out, right? You, you, you put your cup upside down so in the dishwasher so the water comes up and so it all, all comes out, right? You, we clean the inside of the cup, right? I don't spend all my time on the outside, so, oh, look at this. And so I can put it in the counter and say, oh, look at how nice that looks. And you go and you grab some coffee, Krista does in the morning, you go, oh, that wouldn't work. Illustration's easier. Jesus even said, similar-wise, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones. You too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And if you go to Israel, if you've ever been to Israel, the tombs are all, all white stone coffins that are laid on top of the ground because the ground is too hard to bury in. And so, I got a picture of them in the children's notes. Just, just as far as you can see, all this white, clean tombs. And he says, that's what you're like. You look, you look abroad and you look white. You look clean. You look wonderful. But if we would just take up some of those coffins and look inside, we'd say, ugh, rotting flesh, bones. And Jesus says, that's what you're like. You're real good on the outside. You make an appearance as wonderful, but inside... You just got horrible wretchedness going on there. Yeah, you're in your religious show. Yeah, you have clean hands for the world to see. But you don't understand that, that the hands aren't defiling you. It's your hearts that are defiling you. Now, it's interesting. I don't think the Pharisees understood. Because if they had understood, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Nor did the disciples understand either because in verse 17 we read, when he left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned about the parable. What did you mean? It's not those things on the outside, but it's the things on the inside that defile you. What? What do you mean by that? <laughs> and he said, are you so lacking understanding also? They, they couldn't get it in their skull. It's not the religious duties you're doing that's going to defile you, or you do or don't do. It's from within that you get defiled. He says, do you not understand? Whatever goes into the man from the outside cannot defile him because it goes, does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. Thus, he declared all foods clean. In other words, it's not the things on the outside, it's the things on the inside here. So, think about anatomy. That's what he's doing. He's bringing up anatomy. So, think about food. Uh, my son David is trying to learn this lesson, okay? He's trying to take food, and it goes into his mouth, and it goes into his stomach. And then when it goes into his stomach, it goes into the small intestine, it gets digested, and it goes to the larger intestine, then to come out the other side, Right? And then it goes into the toilet. That's, that's the word Jesus is using. It goes into the toilet. And, and let me ask you a question. If you eat your burger today after church, does it go into your heart? 
Nothing? Are you sure? I mean, my, my heart is right here. I'm eating it. I mean, does it go into my heart? Like travel through my left ventricle, into my right ventricle, into my left, and then come out and then, then go down through? It doesn't. It goes into your stomach. Those are two different systems. He says, whatever's on the outside, that's not the thing that's defiling you. Rather, it's the things on the inside that are defiling you. In fact, look at how much Jesus talks about that which goes out. Proceeds, right? That ekporio, that, to, to go out. He was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, verse 20, that's what defiles him. So, what defiles us is what comes from within and comes out, what we do. For from within, out of the heart of man, proceed evil thoughts and fornications and thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed out from within and they defile the man. Our defilement doesn't come from dirty hands. The Bible's clear. Our defilement comes from dirty hearts. When you look at the Bible, it speaks about man abundant in the wickedness of man. Uh, Genesis 6.5, one of the greatest statements that speaks about the diagnosis of our heart. Shortly before the flood, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every thought and intention of the heart was only evil continually. When, when God looked out upon the earth, He saw great evil. That's why He had the flood. And then we took His microscope and started looking at each individual one. He, he said, wow, well this one's pretty deep and evil too because every thought and the intention of the heart was only evil continually. Just deep in the heart of all of us is a deep-rooted sin and selfishness. After the flood, the same thing. The intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Our hearts are evil. They are wicked. They are deceitful. Jeremiah 17.9 The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Our hearts are deceitful. They can deceive others. And you know what? Your hearts can deceive yourselves. I received a book this week. Into thin air. And it um, killed some of my sermon preparation time this week. Uh, I was in Nepal. I, I'm familiar with this book. Um, it tells of the 1996 disaster on Mount Everest. Any, any read this book at all? Okay, some of you have. Good. Wheaton grads. You read it, Krista? Is that what you said? No, not you. Who, who read it over here? Into in, in thin air. I, I'd heard about it. And having gone to Nepal so many times, I'm like, oh, maybe I need to read about it. But it talks about uh, the death of, uh, I forget how many people died on May 11th, 10th and 11th. Um, uh, eight people out of about 30 who tried, who tried to go to the top. Eight people died that day because they went up and it was a, a clear day looking good. And uh, then there were just several disasters came about and a storm came in and just talks about the the death of, of all the people, including a couple guides. Um, but I've known about it, wanted to purchase it, and I saw it in the Paul bookstore, even Yvonne, and I said, uh, how about if I buy that? And it was like $6. I'm like, oh, is that? I can buy it on the plane on the way back. And so back in my hotel, I'm looking at Amazon, it says for a penny. <laughs> so in a hard book. So I waited, and it arrived two days ago, and it's been good. But the, the book talks about the experienced guides who help you to the top. And you pay a lot of money for these guides, like $70,000 for a trip over there. Actually, that doesn't even pay your airfare to go over. That doesn't pay for all your equipment. That just pays for the entrance pass into uh, Everest Park and be able to go up, and it pays for your, um, your guide as well. And they're paid large sums of money to help you up. And here's fundamentally what the guide is being paid for, large sums of money to make sure that you think clearly. Because in the thin air... And I didn't really know this, but you can't really think clearly. Like, like when you don't have enough oxygen in your brain, brain cells start to die, and you, you can barely kind of walk, and you're, <gasps> you're trying to just get breath into there, you're losing your energy, and you even become delirious sometimes. And you need to have someone who's clear-headed, who's got some experience, who's been up there, be able to say, you need to go down, or to be able to, to take them. But, but mostly, it's the guide that you want to listen to when you're in trouble. Because you don't know you're in trouble. You just know, I'm, I'm something's fuzzy. But if a guide, oh yeah, I remember, I made an agreement with the guide. If he tells me to go back, I've got to go back. And that's what you're, you're paying the guide for. And uh, what happens, though, is that they oftentimes say, uh, say, okay, there's this turnaround time. 
because we can, we can go out, we go up the hill, but when it reaches 2 o'clock in the afternoon, we've got to turn back. Because if that much oxygen, if it's taking you to get up there, you're not going to have enough oxygen to get back down and you're going to be in, in a bad shape. Unless you're in spitting distance of the peak, 2 o'clock, you go back home. Kind of the idea of things. And uh, you pay a boatload of money so that when you get up there... And see, the problem with Everest, it's not so much even getting up there, it's getting down and it's the other half of the deal. Because like, even in this book, it talks about several people got up there, but those that got up didn't come down. Because they neglected this 2 o'clock rule, right? That in, in their minds, just kind of seeing where things were because uh, oxygen didn't last, energy lasts, didn't have daylight, the storm comes in. It's the guide that sets the time. And it's the guide that enforces us. All right, listen. Our brains, when it comes to sin and righteousness, are like oxygen deprived. We are deceitful in our own selves and we need the Lord to guide us. And Jeremiah 17, verse 10, the next verse, God says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. God's Word is what diagnoses our heart much better than we do. Faithful friends who are apart from us can diagnose our heart many times better than we can because our heart's going to justify ourselves. I mean, I... Um, that's why Proverbs says this. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Because why? Why is it that there's this way that seems right, but it ends in death? Only that you're not thinking right. Because the, the one watching over here can say, that's a bad choice, that's a bad choice, and then sees the decision. I mean, I can read that book about it in the thin air, say, that was a bad choice, that's a bad choice, and end in death, I can see that. But when you're in the midst of it, you've got a deceitful heart you don't quite know. Why is it that people make poor decisions, even against all counsel? Why do they persuade themselves this is the right thing, even though disaster results, and even though they're counseled against it? It's because minds are deceitful. That's why people commit adultery. They think it's going to bring them happiness in this relationship, but in the end it brings them death. Because our hearts are, are wicked. They aren't righteous. In Romans 3, Paul says, there's none righteous, not even one. See, we aren't good creatures who happen to be defiled by not eating the right way. That's not our problem. Our problem is that we are, are wicked creatures who defile ourselves by all the wicked choices that we make. The evil arises from within. And that's what Jesus is getting at in our text. I mean, just think about this. Is that out of the heart proceed all these things. So you say, why do people do wicked things? Because they have evil thoughts in their heart. Why do people commit fornication? Because where the heart is filled with. Why do people steal? It's because the heart is filled with thefts. Why do people murder? It's because their heart is filled with murderous thoughts. Why do people commit adultery? It's because their hearts are first filled with adultery and then they commit that. Why do people take what's not theirs? It's because their heart is filled with coveting and wickedness. And I'm just walking through this list is all I'm doing, right? Why do people lie? Because their hearts are filled with deceits. Why do people pursue sinful pleasure because their hearts are filled with sensuality? Why do people tear down others with their words? Because their hearts are filled with envy. Why, why do people say wicked things against other people because their hearts are filled with slander? Why do people boast about what they have and what they can do because their hearts are filled with pride? And why do people do foolish things? Well, because their hearts are filled with foolishness. We're not clean. We are defiled people with hearts defiled. Take Paul. Of anybody who's ever lived in the world, Paul is the example of the righteous guy. Born into the right tribe, the favored tribe of Benjamin. Even circumcised on the eighth day. Even according to the ritual, right ritual that was done to him. He was a Pharisee. He was zealous for the law. As to the righteousness and law, he said, I was found blameless. Yet this same man said in Romans 7, when he's struggling with his, with his sin, what I'm doing, I do not understand for I'm not practicing the thing I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. You just see his deceitfulness there that he's persuading himself to do this thing, but he doesn't like it, but he does it. I know that nothing good dwells in me, Paul says. Here's the most righteous guy I ever walked the planet. Nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. Wretched man that I am, he says, who will separate me from the body of this death? 
And then he transitions where we're going to transition, right? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I'm wretched in Jesus. Praise be to God because he makes us righteous. You know, it comes to thinking about our sin, there are really two options. One, we can think about our sin as being externally caused. Right? We sin because of what has been done to us or, or what we don't have. Right? We think we've been deprived of a supporting environment. We think we've found ourselves in a sinful environment. We just imitate sin around us. We can th- think that we're just deprived creatures. And therefore we sin. And, and there's truth to that. When you gather around sinners, you'll be tempted to be like them. But environment isn't the driving factor in our sin. Environment merely brings out what's already there. We're not deprived creatures. Rather, we are creatures who are depraved within. We can look at our sin rather than on the outside what's happened to us. Rather, the, the, our sin is really that we are inside rotten and corrupt and that expresses itself outwards. That's what verse 20 says. Right? That which proceeds out of the man that defiles him. That's why we need hearts transformed, not morality induced through pressure some other way. Our hearts are bad. We are depraved. I love how Al Mohler said it, and I don't have the quote exactly right, but he said something like this. The world thinks we have an external problem, right? Things have happened to us. We're victims. And the world thinks we need an internal solution. And you think, oh yeah, you need to change yourself. Come on, believe in it, baby. You can do it. But the gospel is exactly opposite of that. The gospel is that we have an internal problem. Our hearts are, are sinful. And we're not going to fix ourselves. We need an external source going to come and fix it for us. That's in Jesus Christ. God comes and gives us new hearts. That's the promise of the new covenant, right? I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh. I'll give you the heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you'll be careful to do all of my ordinances. That's the glory of the Gospel. Is that God gives us a new heart and a soft heart and He external to us changes us within. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Changes us and then makes us walk in His ways. And that is the reality of the Gospel. What Jesus has done for us. It's the reality of what we believe. It's the reality here of what we will celebrate here in just a, a few moments. You can turn with me to 1 Corinthians 11. It's a great place again to turn and be reminded of, of what's happening here. It's a, it's a remembrance supper is what we're going to have. We have some crackers like bread, unleavened bread like Jesus had the night of the Passover. Some cups, the fruit of the vine. It's a little bit like the wine that Jesus had at the Lord's Supper. And this is before He died. And he's just talking about how important this is. He says that, uh, Paul says in verse 23, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, in the night which He betrayed, He took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this remember to me. And he's saying, This is symbolic of what's going to happen to me. I'm going to be pierced and crushed and bleed and die upon that cross. But here's something I want you to do so as to remember me. That's why we do it. We do it in remembrance of Him. Every four to six weeks, we are to remember Him in this way. In the same way, He took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in My blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. Again, we just drink that cup in remembering Jesus. And what do we remember? We remember that we are wicked inside and that God has redeemed us from out through our faith in, in Him. And this is an opportunity to proclaim His death. Right? This is what it means. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. You're proclaiming this. When you take us, you say, I'm trusting in Jesus who alone has transformed my heart. Therefore, verse 27, he who eats or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and in so doing is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. And here's really the question to you. Are you a Pharisee? Or are you following the counsel of Jesus? Are you just interested in cleaning up the outside? Are you just worried about, about washing, about how people see you one Sunday morning, about how people see you throughout the week and always putting on your best front? Or, or are you one who, who knows the saving, transforming power of Christ? You say, God, I'm, I'm grateful for what you've done in my heart. And then have your life be an open book. Because when God has cleansed our heart, yes, there's still sin in there, 
but we know it's it's forgiven and it's it's reconciled and we can forgive and be at peace with one another as well. And so this is about so if you're not a follower of Christ, if you're not believing and trusting in him alone, just let the bread and cup pass. But if you are by taking this, you say, you know what? I am believing and trusting in Jesus Christ. I'm repenting of my sin. I'm believing in Him. If that's you, take it. Take it in joy, remembering what Jesus accomplished for you on the cross. Let's pray. Father, as we celebrate the supper, we again come to You, uh, longing for You to, can, to give us a, a right perspective before You, which is that we are internally sinners and that all the external ritual in the world is not going to help us. God, but the only thing that can help us is You give us a new heart. I'm thankful for how You've done that for many of us. We pray for those who don't have that new heart, God, that You would give it and make us walk in Your commandments because we can't help ourselves because of everything You've done for us. And so as we eat this bread, may it be a time of rejoicing a time of joy of reflecting upon sins forgiven, upon reconciliation before you. We thank you and love you in Jesus' name. Amen.